Welcome into the inaugural episode of The Nuclear View, the podcast of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. I am Adam Lowther, and my fellow panelists today are Jim Petrosky, Curtis McGiffin, and Ryan Chmielewski. Jim Petrosky is the president of NIDS. Curtis McGiffin is the vice president for education. I am the vice president for research, and Ryan is a senior analyst and we're here to remind you to think deterrence. Welcome to the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Nuclear View. I am Adam Lowther, along with my fellow panelists, Jim Petrosky, Curtis McGiffin, and Ryan Chmielewski. And we, of course, are your fellows from the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, what I personally think is probably the the world's greatest think tank if you care about deterrence. And today, of course, we are going to talk about the Nuclear Posture Review. It was released a few weeks back, and it has caused quite a stir. Of course, every think tank in D.C. is already written uh, what their views are on the NPR. And we thought we would, of course, take a swing at it as well. And so, uh, gentlemen, you know, uh, a few, a week or so ago, there was an article by some, some of our, the gray beards in our profession that had John Harvey and Brad Roberts and Keith Payne, and they, they offered their take on the NPR that was a pretty balanced look. It was, you know, and had some positives and a few negatives. Um, and I'm curious what, what y'all thought of initially about this, the gray beard look at the NPR, Ryan, what was your take? I think you're right, Adam. I think it presented a well-balanced, uh, kind of view that maybe was a little bit, uh, not critical enough, but, um, um, I don't think anything was surprising in the new NPR, so there wasn't really kind of the, the um, you know, people jumping up and down that big, big things have changed. A little bit of language uh, change, but, uh, and then some um, slowing down of modernization in terms of the SLCM, uh, things like that, so. Uh, that was my initial take on the article. Yeah, Curtis, there was some, you know, the idea we were wondering, lots of folks were sitting around wondering, are they going to try, you know, one of the areas that or one of the systems that the the disarmament community has been looking to get rid of is the the ICBM. That did not happen, so that was a bit surprising. But we did, of course, there's an intention to eliminate the hedge and to eliminate the submarine-launched cruise missile. Uh, what was your take on the NPR and what we, what we got out of it? Well, thanks, Adam. My first observation in this is, is the authors, right? So you got John Harvey, Frank Miller, Keith Payne, Brad Roberts, Bob Sufer. It's like the Rolling Stones of the <laughs> thought leaders, right? The classics, the greatest of the generation, right? All in one you know, as I printed out, three and a half page <clears throat> article uh, providing an extremely well-balanced uh, assessment in, in very few words. 
which is challenging. The other thing I'll note is of the authors, you've got several who served uh, Democratic uh, administrations and several that served Republican administrations. And uh, so you, you, you got that balance as well, right? So the different perspectives as you come through. Um, you know, I, I think um, uh, your points are, are spot on, Adam. The, the thing I would also add is, is this controversy over the language, right? The fact that the sole purpose uh, desire was left out. And so could was- you maybe clarify for some of the, for the listeners, when you say, you know, there's the no first use, that was one of the questions. Would we get right. a no first use policy? And then this other idea of sole purpose, could you clarify what those are for everybody? Right. So, um, so, uh, so sole purpose, so no first use is essentially a, a pledge that uh, that that America would never go first in, a, in any in any instance of of nuclear necessity, if you will, uh, rather as a sole purpose basically lays out um, uh, this idea that we would only use nukes uh, in, in order to deter a strategic attack on on America or its allies. So it's a little bit of a wider aperture, I think. Uh, so, but, but you won't use them for a cyber attack. You won't use them for us yes. because of, because of a space attack only, only because of a nuclear. That is correct. So, so, and, and this is where there's, there's confusion in the documents because, so if you look at the, at the 2018 NPR, uh, it, it alludes to the idea of possible use of nuclear, uh, in response to a non-nuclear strategic attack you could read like a massive cyber attack on the US. But in in this NPR, that language does not exist. So you're really talking about just a nuclear attack, right? And, uh, and so, so these becomes, uh, this becomes the challenge. And so we get to the, uh, this, the, 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 the language that everybody uh, sort of was surprised that's that, that goes back to this term, uh, fundamental use was sort of the compromise. And this was a, it was a big deal about this terminology, fundamental use. As long as nuclear weapons exist, I quote here, the fundamental role of nuclear weapons is to deter nuclear attack on the United States, our allies, and our partners. I will tell you that language is ex- almost verbatim in the 2010 NPR, the Obama-Biden yeah. administration. This is, let me tell you, there have been five presidents who have produced their NPRs. No president has ever produced two NPRs. This could be the first if we roll <laughs> the administration. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, so, so that one was an interesting, you know, this, the, the language, but the other thing that I, I haven't seen a ton of discussion about that, I throw this over to you, Jim, and that's this question of eliminating the hedge. Could you maybe discuss that and maybe tell our listeners, you know, what is the hedge and why we've had it and sort of what is the argument here? Um, well, let me, let me take two pieces here because I, I, I want to catch on to a couple of things that were said earlier. And the first piece is um, regarding the, the language in the NPR itself. And there's so many think tanks like ourselves who are talking about it and yet there's even a, a full paragraph that says one of the most important things is discussing and making sure our adversaries as well as our allies understand exactly what we're going to do. And I think what ended up happening, or at least what I see in the NPR as I look at that, is we'll, we'll get back to you know build, building in on, on, 
on the hedge itself is that we have not the NPR in my uh, review is not is is not as bold as it needs to be. And when you take the boldness away, the language gets lost. You lose the flavor of what we're trying to say. And so your adversary now is in the it, it has to interpret what you mean, just as you're talking about, about the hedge, about what we mean by uh, a, a nuclear use or any kind of a nuclear deterrent. And that's a, that's an important part of the policy in the NPR that I, that I see in the other think tanks as well as ourselves in reviewing this and saying, what is the end result? What's the end game? I want to address that first. Maybe Adam, you might have another comment on that before we go forward. No, no. Tell me more as far as what, what you're thinking on this or or Ryan, you jump in as well. So, so to, convey deterrence the right way. You have to be explicit in what you mean. So your adversary has a clear picture of what will, what you're deterring and how you will deter. If you don't, then, uh, and and we'll talk about language, but we'll also talk about action. Uh, In the language, you have to be very clear so that they, that your adversaries know if this happens, this is going to be the response. And there's no question about it. Because if you leave a question, it leaves it for interpretation. And your interpretation and your adversary's interpretation can be predominantly differently. And that will that will get stop the deterrent from occurring overall. And I'll I'll give you the example where the, the language and the and the action occurs. And as everyone knows, I'm the technology person in the room. And so I look at modernization as a truly technology-oriented activity. So that's where I see the, the activity, and, and I was glad to see in the NPR, we talk about continued modernization because it, it's, it's not a boat you can re, return, you know, you turn on a dime. You get into modernization, you're talking about a 30, 40 year activity. I mean, it is now. It was never intended to be that because we, we used to, re, you know, we would replace the, you know, each leg of the triad delivery systems, warheads once a decade. Welcome and so, for, you know, the very fact, <laughs> I mean, the very fact that you're saying it's a 30 or 40 year process that shows, you know, sort of how far we've gone from the, the original intent and the approach we maintained for, you know, 50 years. Adam, I absolutely agree, but that's, that's the condition we're in at present. Now I would agree also, and it's always been my technology view because I always take that uh, that view in that the technology drives what you're capable of doing in today's modern warfare. And so we look at the, the way we do technology should be agile. I don't see a lot of that, those comments about agility and a, ability to re, you know, resurface our, our capability on a dime, yet our adversaries tend to be doing that. Yeah, what, what was your take, Ryan? So I agree with uh, with Jim, but the, you know, I think between the lines, especially when they start talking about um, conventional and nuclear integration, it's uh, there's ideas between the the words there that suggest that those technology gains we've made in the conventional realm will seep into uh, nuclear well realm especially in terms of NC3, right? Because we need assured comms now and cyber protected comms in the conventional world. And 
what we've learned there will directly translate into the nuclear command and control as well. Yeah, I mean, there was one in near the end in the sort of Section 8, a resilient and adaptive nuclear security enterprise. They talk about, they say, you know, second NNSA will institute a production-based resilience program to complement the science-based stewardship program and ensure that the nuclear security enterprise is capable of full-scope production. And then the, the third thing was that NNSA will establish a science and technology innovation initiative to accelerate integration of science and technology. As, so they, they may try to get at it. Yeah, Adam, but, but you, you, you really caught my attention there. I think it's good for our audience. <laughs> and that is, those, there are a lot of words there. Can sure. you distill that to what you get? I have out of that, no Adam? idea what that means. I'm not <laughs> sure what that means. I don't know. I don't know. Thank you. How, how, so, so the, the thing that, you know, some of the folks I've talked to have, you know, the elimination of Slickleman has been a big thing. That's mm-hmm. sort of been a big point, but the idea of eliminating a hedge, mm-hmm. which is, this is our ability to upload ICBMs. It's our ability if there's a technical failure in warheads, that's the one that actually worries me the most. And so for you as the, you know, the, the nuclear engineer in, in the group, I, I'm curious what your take on this is, Jim. So, so yeah, so I was, I, I was going there, but you, you sort of caught, uh, caught my attention with the, uh, with the, uh, we'll call word spaghetti that you pulled out there. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's my point is we have to, the, the nuclear hedge itself or all these you know, warheads that are you know, put in storage where they're no longer part of the active inventory and the objective to bring them in and out of the, in, in and out of the inventory as needed to provide that agility, which was where I was heading in the, in the earlier talk. And you see that. However, as technology changes, as we modernize, do we have you know, if we take that hedge off the table, how do we put something on the ground very quickly without that in place? Where does that agility come from? It will only come from some other way of delivering and or some other technology weapon that is not nuclear. And as we've seen, and I'm sure just among the four of us, the argument that we would make is nuclear stops nuclear. The objective is deterrence. And so the way you stop nuclear weapon usage is you have to show that you have a capability, but, you know, to, you know, to respond and respond diligently against your enemy or adversary. Yeah. What's your take, Curtis? So the NPR, we have to remember the NPR is a political document. Uh, And what we're seeing here is the, the walking of a delicate line between the pressures of defending America and her allies and placating um, an anti-nuclear constituency. What eliminating the hedge, active hedge or inactive hedge means is a holistic removal of of many, 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 (laughs) possibly thousands of warheads um, and and, uh, without I don't know. What does Congress say about that? Uh, and and so this is a this is a big challenge. And to your point, Adam, having that ability to 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 uh, upload 
and and do some things that we can do uh, should things get worse, right? We've got China. Uh, the article's out today, right? That China's going to have 1,500 warheads by 2035, 1,000 by 2030. This is public uh, out, you know, just released today from the from that uh, OSD China report that just came out uh, publicly. Uh, and then if you factor in America, uh, sorry, the Russians 1,550 warheads, and they uh, align themselves together as speculated in the um, in the uh, assessing the nuclear posture review uh, that uh, is is postulated in this article that we were talking about with the uh, with the Rolling Stones, um, you essentially have uh, this possibility where we may need uh, to increase our nuclear capacity very quickly. That's what the hedge was designed to do, and is by the way is interrupting the pres- precedence of four previous presidents who have realized, identified, and uh, the, the hedge since uh, the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. Yeah, it it's to me, it's pretty concerning for the fact that we're in a very dynamic world in which our adversaries, I mean, they're, they perceive themselves as in, in conflict with the United States right now. They don't, they don't use the term competition. That's not a term they use. They conflict. Now, is it a kinetic conflict? No, not presently. There's some cyber elements. There's some space elements. There's economic elements, but it's, it's conflict. And they're building, you know, larger nuclear arsenals. They're focused on uh, low yield theater, nuclear weapons, uh, which is in many respects, I think, a trap for us because we're focused on strategic weapons. Uh, well, and and it's a challenge. Go ahead, Curtis. I'm with you. You know, again, as I said, this is the hedge has been pre- is a precedence for um, all from from Clinton to Trump. And I would argue the world is not safer today than it was in the 90s, even in the early 2000s, especially with regard to, to possible nuclear uh, confrontation. And to your point on competition, uh, you know, as there's many folks out there and I, I won't, I won't cite them, but they're my mentor out there. Who's one of the Rolling Stones, uh, always states that the competition is a misnomer because it implies that we're, that we're playing by the same rules that are refereed. And this is not true. <laughs> and so, uh, so we have to realize how we use these terms. Although I am a firm believer that there is a gap between competition and conflict, and that gap is deterrence. And how well you do deterrence is how large or how small that gap is. And so this is why these tools, these theories, and the, and the wholehearted total commitment to deterrence, and nuclear deterrence specifically, is the only way you're going to keep that gap wide. Yeah, Curtis, I, I want to jump on that because that was a comment I was going to make later on. And that is that this, this concept of deterrence, conflict, uh, uh, and, and, uh, um, oh, what was the word you used, Adam? Conflict and competition. competition. Yeah. Cause I don't, I don't like competition as well uh, with you. Um, and, and that is that it is a dynamic thing. It's always going to be changing. It's going to be broadening as Curtis says, and it's going to be shrinking because 
every action that you do, your adversaries are going to make other actions. And you've got to be agile and capable of not only responding, what you really want to do is be ahead of your adversaries. So they're responding to you, making that ebb and flow. And that's what the hedge provides us the ability is to make the decision ahead of our adversaries. And I'm going to go back because you, you commented to me on the, on the uh, concept of the technology. We have to take new approaches to the te technology application in both getting the funding for new technologies, implementing new technologies, adjusting new technologies, and then applying those new technologies in ways that we haven't done in the past. Otherwise, we get in the situation we're in now. And that keeps that ability to play with that gap between those two as a deterrent um, much more manageable from a country versus you know the tail wagging the dog what's your take ryan you've been quiet for a few minutes so i think you know with the modernization of all three of the legs of the triad the the shift of hedging has become in the management of the the arsenal and not necessarily a numbers game but how capable they will become with the modernization and then you know if if done right, I believe, you know, they become more adaptable later just by design. Um, so I think we'll get some of that, that goodness, maybe not in terms of going to the shed and pulling out more weapons, but um, the more ability capable. To, yeah. Upgrade the weapons um, even in not even manufacturing them, but, you know, using things like digital twins and things like that to, run run upgrades and have them ready before we even cut metal and put them on the, the weapon. So um, I'm more of a an optimist, I guess, that uh, that that modernization is really signaling the strength there that we're, that we're doing all three at once and that that we can. So yeah, p part of the thing that worries me, you know, that I like so for for the audience, I mean, the, the warheads that we call the hedge are partially disassembled warheads that are missing components that are in storage. So they're not actively on, you know, this is one of the things that I think is somewhat misleading whenever many in the disarmament community, when they want to count the size of the American arsenal, they don't count operationally deployed nuclear weapons. They count partially disassembled weapons in storage. And so that's misleading because it makes our arsenal look a lot larger because there's more weapons that are partially disassembled in storage than there are that can be used. And to take a, a weapon in storage and put it on a platform, a delivery vehicle, that's not a quick and easy task. And so that, you know, the idea that there is a hedge, that's not a quick and easy thing to do. That's something that's that makes it's a big muscle movement for the NNSA's, you know, manufacturing and production capability to take those and make them operational, even if you want to put them on, you know, let's say a Minuteman 3, which can hold more than one warhead it would still take quite a bit to manufacture shells and other components that you would put on it. And so I worry 
that with the growing capability of the Chinese in particular, like if if I'm the Russians, I'm okay with reductions in strategic warheads. I'm okay. Like if I were to come to complete disarmament of strategic warheads, that's fantastic for me because my problem is, are, you know, NATO countries to the West and China to the South and East. And I can destroy both with theater nuclear weapons. Technically, I don't need strategic weapons if I'm, if I'm Russia. And then if I'm China, I really don't need them either. I really need theater nuclear weapons. And if we, as the United States, eliminate the hedge and then we, you know, eliminate the weapons that are in the the strategic arsenal, which is almost all we have now, we're putting ourselves in a very significant bind. Yeah, Adam, I'd say I, the only part I'd disagree on that is it depends on what the intent of your adversary is. Certainly, if it was to attack the mainland, um, then all bets are off. That's why I would say uh, a mixed view and a mixed capability of strategic as well as tactical weapons tends to give you the most flexibility in applying yourself to an adversary. And going back to your comment about the hedge, uh, you know, we don't want to get ourselves into a position where we are, you know, you have to make a decision between reliability and number of tools in the cabinet. And that's where I see the hedge is often overspoken because you, you, you know, just like anything else, you put your car in a garage and you let it sit there for 50 years and you don't even start it and you don't even do anything else with it. You pull it out and you have to use it to escape a tornado. Um, well, you might want to rethink your strategy. <laughs> so that's always, you know, my, my bare bones, you know, thought about how we use our, our hedge. Oh, yeah. Jim, I love the uh, analogy. Um, I think the, also there's a question that, is, that I think is not answered yet is, what is the impact on extended deterrence with the, if the hedge is actually eliminated? Um, what does that mean to the allies who are counting, who are in fact counting numbers, right? And, uh, and now they've just been told, oh, the Silicon not going to be there as well. Mm. Who, you know, our allies like Japan was not happy back in 2009 when the TLAM N was removed. Uh, and so uh, how are we assuring allies when we are unwilling as a nation to invest in these kinds of capabilities in order to ensure the byproduct of nonproliferation by our, by our allied nations. If we don't assure them, they will assure themselves. And we need to, uh, we need to think about that. We need to think about that. So let me, let me ask this. We, we've not talked about slick them in. Uh, we've, I mentioned it earlier, but we've not really talked about it. So this new NPR eliminates Slickham in. I think Congress has put in a little bit of money to sort of keep it alive in the R and D realm. But, you know, the argument is the W 76 mod two low yield submarine launch ballistic missile can do everything and provides the capability that Slickham in would provide. And so therefore Slickham in is not required. That's, that's the argument. Um, so what, what say each of you about Slickham in and its need? And I'll, I'll go ahead, Curtis, you go first. 
Curtis is hot on this. So I I love the Slickham N controversy, right? This is the same weapon system that uh, then candidate president, candidate Biden said this was a bad idea, right? And, uh, and now it's here. But what's the option? But what is the optics of removing the low yield weapon out of the submarines, replacing it with a high yield weapon? I mean, that doesn't help you if your optics is, is that you want to be, you want to lessen the, the impact of nuclear weapons on our national security. So that plays a sort of an optics role there. My con- concern has always been, uh, while I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of any tool in the toolbox, uh, is that What's it look like when you launch a ballistic missile out of a submarine? How does the adversary know a low yield from a high yield weapon? Uh, how, how do they know that in the theater? Uh, and that's and easy. What kind of escalation On potential? Do, yeah, when it goes boom. Well, yeah, okay, but then by then, but they all have launch on warning uh, goals, uh, and and we don't. Uh, and so, um, uh, so again, the idea is to deter us, right? And 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 so we've got a two front battle here. We're, we're fighting their efforts to deter us and we've got to fight efforts to deter ourselves. Yeah. How about you, Ryan? Did you have a thought on slick man? Our, our resident optimist. <laughs> well, um, you know, it goes into the, uh, the treasure of the nation, right? I think it, it's in the economics matter at this point. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't think we're going to hit a button without telling somebody first, and we're going to tell them exactly what's coming at them, um, especially in the low-yield realm, right? Because we don't want to ignite uh, the big candles if our intent is to use the low-yield to stop um, aggression in its tracks. Um, So I don't know what we do... um, instead of that for low yield on submarine, but maybe that's not part of the economics right now. Yeah. How, how about you, Jim? What was your take? Yeah. yeah. So, so I'm sort of in Curtis's boat when it comes to, you know, give me lots of tools and we'll figure out how to use them. However, I'll go back to what the NPR is all about and use Curtis's words once again. Curtis, you're getting a lot of attention today. Um, <laughs> you're too kind. But, uh, but Curtis said the document is really a political document. And it's, and it's two pieces of politics here, though, that, that are concerning because they sort of go counter to each other. One part is what are you saying about your ability to reduce spending on something that at least some have believed did not, um, is not needed? The, the other side of the politics, more international politics, is what are we telling our, our allies and our adversaries in terms of our commitment? And again, I, I haven't studied this in detail, but those are the two pieces that I think you know, we need to look at, our audience need to look at when it looks at taking something off the table. But eventually, and, you know, having been around politics, et cetera, you have to be willing to take some things off the table. I'm not sure this is the one we want to for the reason of high yield versus low yield uh, commitments, because it is an, an, an interest in deterring our enemy from any uh, use of weapons, not just saying, well, we'll, we'll tickle it a little bit and see what happens. Then deterrence is not deterrence. Well, if you're going to take it off the table, at least save it for the arms control negotiations. 
Now they don't have to negotiate that away. We did it for them. Yeah, I very, mean, this very, was... Very good way to say what I blathered about. Well, you know, and if you go back to the INF Treaty and the debates that went on within the Reagan White House, he, you know, fielded new systems in, in Pershing and Glickham. He fielded those systems specifically so that he could then negotiate them away because mm-hmm. what we would give up was far less than what the Russians were going to give up. It was, you know, it was, it was a brilliant approach to it. So, but you know, we're, we're just about out of time for, for the show today. So I want to give you guys a, an opportunity to sort of give the NPR, you know, your, your 30 second speech, you know, is it a thumbs up? Is it a thumbs down? Is it a, eh? What, what's your take? We'll start with you, Ryan. Yeah, overall, I'm a, eh, it's all, you know, the same mesh of words, maybe a, a small change here or there. Um, but that's, I think, where it needs to be for uh, things like nuclear posture, right? We don't want huge changes. We don't want big surprises. Um, so even in terms of the hedging, it's, you know, it's not mind-blowingly um new or different okay how about you curtis so uh you know as an educator i'm going to give it a grade i'd call it a d plus uh it does a good job of describing the world and then ignoring it in its policies and um in in the in the conflict that that the world is today uh again it and 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 it's going to hide behind the classified version there is a classified version of this npr that most of our listeners are not familiar with. And if, and, and if there are details in the classified version that aren't in this version, then, uh, then it's, it doesn't matter. We can only draw a conclusion. The adversary is only going to draw a conclusion on the public version. And I think the conclusion, the only conclusion they can draw from this thing is it's a win for them. Jim. Yeah, so I'll, I'll stick to my initial comment, and that was that it's not bold enough. And you got to be bold in the time that you have adversaries knocking at your door. And that's that was my takeaway. I will say, uh, so I'll, I'll give you a positive. And my, my positive, I was glad to see nuclear modernization was still on the table. Uh, if they, they you, you turn that off, you really would have uh, made a, a major break. And then since you said this is my last chance to make a comment, because I was like making a comment about Adam and what we've said, this is the first podcast I've been on where you've mentioned a rock group that I actually know, the Rolling Stones. <laughs> <laughs> I believe I mentioned the rock group. Yeah, you did. Um, you did. <laughs> hey, I wanted to add one positive, though, so sure. I don't sound overly, you know, uh, casting too much shadow on this thing. It's called throwing shade, Curtis. You're throwing right. shade. That's it. Thank you. Thank you. See, I'm still listening to the Rolling Stones. I'm not hip with it. Uh, hey, so uh, one thing the administration does tremendously well in this document is the calling out of education, the need to educate and train the workforce um, uh, both in and around this mission set uh, from top to bottom, I think is is a is admirable. Uh, our, our, we've had, uh, you know, a we've been on this sort of strategic vacation now for the last 20 plus years fighting the global war on terror. And now we've got to learn again how to do this. And uh, education is the way we're going to close that gap. 
And I, I have to give kudos to the administration for for pushing education um, on uh, through this document. I think that is uh, fantastic. Here, here. Yeah, I mean, if if I could, my summary of it would simply be that it's a naive look at a dangerous world, and it you know uh, deterring. War is far cheaper than fighting them. If if you just take the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, which were minor right. conflicts for the United States, you know I've seen estimates of up to five trillion dollars. Five trillion dollars for what we've spent there, and the nuclear modernization is supposed to be one point two in a right. over the course of thirty years in what is a six trillion dollar budget each year. So one hundred and eighty trillion. We'll spend less than one half of one percent on that. So uh, I think we're we're not effectively trying to prevent war, which is the cheaper thing to do. Um, so with that, gentlemen, thanks for joining us for this inaugural edition of the Nuclear View. Of course, the podcast of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. I am Adam Lowther with Jim Petrosky, Curtis McGiffin, and Ryan Chimalewski, and we are all fellows of, of NIDS, and we hope that you enjoyed today's show where we discussed the Nuclear Posture Review. We didn't lay it out for you. We didn't walk you through it. We sort of gave you our views of it and some of the highlights of it because it's about a 30-page document, and it says quite a bit of stuff. So if you want to, you can go read it. If you Google Nuclear Posture Review 2022, you can find it and read it for yourselves. And then just read it and then maybe listen to the Today Show. And it'll make the most sense if you do that first. And that it's important because we live in a democracy where the citizens have an important role to play. And like you said, Curtis, education and information is important. It's important for our citizenry. So thanks for joining us. Thanks, gentlemen. And we'll look forward to seeing you on the next edition of The Nuclear View.